Welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on news, culture, and politics, where it is our mission to arm you with the tools you need to cut through media misdirection and resist the mono-narrative. Please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you are. We cover a variety of topics, so use the chapter marks below to find the subject that you are most interested in. Our top story is today. For the first time in American history, the Speaker of the House has been deposed by the Chamber. And... Newsweek drops a bombshell article detailing the FBI's efforts to target MAGA supporters as domestic terrorists ahead of the 2024 election. Here to talk about all of this and more is our usual suspect, David Rand, white man and renowned sexist pig. How are you, David? Ouch. Uh, good. Good. Uh, till now, I guess. Well, look, these are okay. allegations. Okay. Alleg- <laughs> you are innocent until proven guilty. You gotta say that up front. You can't, you can't, you can't back in allegations. <laughs> I can back Alleged into whatever. white male. And <laughs> okay, fair. Fair. All right. I don't think granted. the white male part's in question, though. Well, I mean, it is 2023. We can't That's assume anything. That's a good point. Yeah. And special guest, recurring guest now, Kat Dwyer, who is our token uterus-owning individual. How are you, Kat? That's right. I'm good. Glad to be here. (laughs) You're much more than our token uterus-owning individual, too. thank you. (laughs) My name is Joe Sheehan. I am classically woke and politically non-binary, and if you (laughs) want to know what that means, join our Discord, and I'll explain it to you. Okay, enough of the formalities. Let's talk about some news. What's going on in the House of Representatives? Well, we're going we're gonna to start off with, can I address my sexist pig oh, accusation? Oh, can you, Could we sorry. lead with that, please? I, I thought we were just going to let that one wait. <laughs> just gonna, <laughs> You got to wait to the very end to find out if I am or not. Or do, we, do you want to do that? We can I, do think, that. I think we just, we're just here to defame you, and then we just kind of push you to the side. Just ignore it yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So, yes, let's, well, ad- let's address this. Let's start off with the, with the, with the video evidence uh, of my... Um, my sexism and uh, we could talk about it now i am actually we're kind of talking about this way i want to be clear we got some feedback we were that was completely reasonable and i don't want to like cast that as like out of proportion some folks just reached out they're like hey love the podcast but you know this is maybe something to worry about and i was like this is a really interesting topic as far as how should we think about female and male problems and assets and liabilities when it comes to politics and political campaigning. And I think specifically, specifically debates. So uh, let's go ahead and roll the video on, on Joe, who looks exactly the same a week ago as he does today. It's really, it's really quite amazing. Well, cartoon character, you know, I'm, I am Doug funny. You open up the closet and I've got all the same shirts and all the same pants. That's me. Uh, it's the Steve Jobs method. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I thought this was a Mark Zuckerberg thing. Well, maybe he stole it from Steve. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyways, enough about me. Let's get to David's sexism. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys feel about this debate? David, what was your what was your overall impression of what went on there? It kind of felt like a rerun. It kind of felt like watching a Seinfeld episode. And the whole time you're like, did I already watch this one? It feels very familiar. Uh, there was a couple different dynamics but that were different. But the overall, like... the talking points were largely the same what they talked about didn't really change that much i didn't really feel like a lot of new information got came out like maybe i'm just being pessimistic it was kind of towards the end of the week and i was in a bad mood maybe but i, I just did not I, I didn't get a lot out of it um one dynamic that i thought overall was desantis came across a little bit better vivek didn't attack as much and was attacked even more and i'm not sure if that really made a difference and uh, Nikki Haley was more shrill, and and uh, Christy, Chris Christie was Chris Christie. 
you know, he attacked Trump the whole time who wasn't even there. So it's like, it's yeah. kind of seems Tim Scott was also way more aggressive because he was basically a non-factor in the previous debate, but he was like very attacking. That's right. Um, throughout the entire thing. Uh, like in a very annoying fashion to me, it, it, it felt like, ugh, like it was very cringe to me. I think really Tim Scott's real weakness is despite being a U.S. Senator and, and a very nice guy, um, he just doesn't have a lot of depth on some of his attacks. No. Yeah. So, uh, Kat, you are here to hold me accountable <laughs> to my terrible, horrible sexism. Can How we offensive just, can we just, am I on a scale of one to ten? I mean, really, look at me. Look at me. But. You embody white supremacy and misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Could not have said I'm kidding. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you're not wrong, though. I mean, as a, as a stereotype, he kind of does fit the bill. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one looks at me and be like, that guy couldn't possibly be a bad guy in like a racist, you know, social justice warrior fantasy novel, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But I mean, is it, is it offensive? Like, would you have taken that as being like, kind of like, oh man, like that's, this guy might not like women because of the way he described that whole kaleidoscope of issues and specifically with her. Well, first thought is in the context of saying Nikki Haley was shrill and therefore that might equal misogyny. I'm surprised nobody called you guys racist for saying Tim Scott was annoying. Fair point. <laughs> Maybe also deserved as, as well. <laughs> no, I think you're neither uh, racist nor misogynist. Um, I kind of found her to be shrill as well. I don't think she's the only one on the stage to sound that way. I think even Vivek can kind of sound that way too. Um, and I don't mean to disappoint any female listeners, but I kind of just think it's a matter of having like a high octave voice or not. Mm. And I mean, men and women alike with a higher voice are sort of obnoxious to listen to, especially if they're raising their voice and they're complaining about something. You know, I think there, there's some legacy, right, of the female stereotype of like a nagging wife or a nagging mother. And I'm sure that's like some sort of subconscious piece of that. But um, I honestly think it's just more about voice tone than anything else. Something that I'd like to add is just a point of clarity, too, is that the feedback really came around the fact that we perhaps we didn't we didn't address uh, Nikki Haley's performance in the debate with enough nuance to not suggest inadvertently to female listeners that, um, you know, we weren't just attacking her based on these very shallow, you know, attributes or taking these sort of tropes and, and kind of applying them to her in that way. And I think that's a valid criticism. I don't think that we did necessarily enough justice, like dialing into why we said the things that we did. We were sort of just kind of joking around and having fun with it. Um, and I, I said some things too, you know, I, I criticized her, her attire, which I did in the prior debate as well. Um, how dare you? <laughs> we don't that's have David on the, on the, on the, uh, pretend, uh, um, soundboard that we're going to get here soon. Anyways, join the discord so we can get a soundboard. Yes. Uh, those aren't related. I'm not sure how they're related, but, but sometime eventually. <laughs> um, my point, my point with that is, and this is a, should be a question for you, Kat is, you know, as a, as a female in a debate surrounded by men, Nikki Haley chose in both debates to differentiate herself with a tire where she had the opportunity or the, you know, 
the, the opportunity to just not stand out, just to wear something plain and professional and let her ideas do the talking. But it, it's, it's customary, I think, in American politics for a female candidate to be a little bit more, to, to, have, to show style and fashion, right? I mean, I think Michelle Obama really like popularized that as being like this really fashionable first lady, right? Palin was one of the Palin first as well. ones I can really think of that was where her fashion and her expensive expense on her fashion actually became a major element of the campaign. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question would be, if you are on a stage to convey ideas as to why you would be the best CEO of a country and you choose to set yourself apart visually from a, with a fashion statement, is that worthy of critique in addition to the ideas that you're there to, to spread? I don't think it would be fair to critique her for doing that, for attempting to differentiate herself that way and like leaning into her femininity. Um, I think that her particular choice in the second debate was not great visually, not because of even like the structure of the style of it, but just like the, the, the satin fabric I don't think plays well on camera. It's too, it's like shiny and distracting personally. That's what I think. And that kind of burgundy color, it gave me Christmas vibes. Mm. Not mm. like Republican debate vibes. <laughs> I think if it was, I think if it was a matte fabric and it was like a brighter, richer red, not a deep red like that, I think that could have worked really well. She looked like your stepmom came down on Christmas to open some presents, and that's what was going on. <laughs> Actually, totally. I'm yelling what, at you because you're opening them too soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and get off TikTok, I young man. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. I wonder. I wonder. Okay, so it doesn't matter. I'm gonna. I'm gonna poke the bear here. It doesn't matter that Joe's a dude. Can guys critique, critique women's fashion and not be sexist? It seems to me, and this might be. Weapons grade autism, but uh, that you can because I mean, especially I shouldn't because I'm colorblind and I have no sense of style whatsoever. But Joe is a visual artist who's like literally looking at someone saying visual artist like things like that white suit look washes you out against the white background behind you. Maybe not something they could control, but that's like a criticism of the campaign's decision to dress her that way. And, and I'm not kidding when I say the campaign's decision. When you are in a presidential campaign or a Senate campaign or a governor's campaign, you are having regular conversations about wardrobe as if you were an actor. This is a real thing. You take classes on how to speak and you practice how to debate and how to speak. And it's, it's a discipline, not a, not a personal criticism. It's a, it's a criticism of the business decision of what to wear. So that's where I think there's a difference between like, I don't like that woman's clothes on some street corner when, and even then like it should be okay to have an opinion about someone else's clothes, right? Without being a misogynist. No, it's 2023, right? There's, I mean, and, and I think if there, the idea of chivalry has been sort of squashed by the modern feminist movement. And I think if we're going to play by those rules, they should probably expand and reach into every aspect of like human interaction. So, so are you saying my comments were not chivalrous? Well, I was <laughs> just saying in, Which is in terms of being respectful or whatever, yeah. like I traditionally probably know it's not a place for a man to comment on women's fashion, but I think in today's world and our current culture, sure. Hmm. What's the difference? And I was like, a you know, anarcho capitalist, like I sure have at it. I think the only thing is 
that, that I'm seeing is it creates an additional attack vector for someone who is ready to try to criticize someone who's on a debate stage to be criticized, right? Like they're all up there to have their ideas pressed, like pressed and, and stress tested and everything like that. And so to me, to, to, to make an, an overt fashion decision does, you know, open you up to people deciding whether they like it or don't like it. And again, it's, that's like the least, the least important aspect of Nikki Haley on that stage. I think the, the, the number one reason to object to her would be like her foreign policy views, first and foremost. I, I was going to say my biggest issue with her in the second debate was her sort of implying that we should go to war with Mexico to to stop the drug trade, as if we haven't had a war on drugs before yeah, in the right. past. Yeah. And that's it like, hasn't failed. This year, that's like a third of the Republican field is right, at this point. Right. It's pretty wild. Like They're like, if we're not drone striking someone in Mexico, we failed our <laughs> drug policy. It's like, wow. Well, it's, and it's completely incongruent with many of the Republicans' stance on Ukraine, too. I mean, Nikki Haley isn't one of those people, but, yeah. you know, I mean, even DeSantis has flirted with that idea of using military force against the Mexican cartels while at the same time suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be funding Ukraine. Yeah, I, well, I mean, well, you unpack that. What do you mean by that? Well, if... If you're anti-war, you're anti-war, right? How could mm. you possibly flirt with the idea of something that could easily escalate into a war, right? And then suggest at the same time that we shouldn't have military intervention somewhere else. So I think, I think uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm on the side of we should neither bomb Mexico nor bomb Russia. Like right. that's, that's, <laughs> a, okay. that's where I'm at. But I, I do think there is, uh, I think there's a Republican difference specifically within the realism school between an unending and open commitment to forever give our military funds to Ukraine, another country, you know, that is unrealistic to be able to protect forever, you know, with a blank check um, against a a, a determined foe versus our own border to the South of us. So if we were being, it makes more sense to conduct a war to save our citizens in the United States from the fentanyl epidemic. If you agree with that, than to defend Ukrainians from Russians. Does that make it from a conservative point of view, not a libertarian point of view, but a conservative one. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But then I think you'd have to get into a debate about whether or not like we're really being attacked right by the drug trade or if we just have a strong demand in our country that is, you know, uh, incentivizing the supply of these drugs. And very, and very specifically, because of the drug war, a supply of the most intense by volume drug. It's called the Iron Law of Prohibition. Have you heard of it? No, actually. Yeah, it's an economic concept uh, called the Iron Law of Prohibition, basically meaning if it's, if it's illegal, it creates an incentive for a, each dose to, have, to be as intense as possible. Mm. So, so mm. each unit volume is smaller. Great example, moonshine didn't really exist before prohibition. But once you get prohibition, you have an incentive to make your alcohol as intense as possible, as high alcohol per volume per liter as you can, so that when you transport it, you're less likely to get caught. Because volume is how you get caught. Oh, sure. A big old barrel of beer versus a small canister of Everclear. Right. That makes one sense. you can hide easier from yeah. the authorities. So with fentanyl and with the most dangerous drugs that we're now kind of that we've seen come out in the past ten years. It's just an extension of the iron law prohibition. Hmm. Anyways, we're digressing a little bit. We are, but that's all right. I think it's a, it's a worthwhile conversation. And, and again, it's the, it's the ideas that matter. Uh, the other thing that I should address for my, my own sake, my own part that I played in the sexist 
uh, feedback. It wasn't, it, you know, it was great feedback. It was very worthwhile. But the thing I want to address with a little more clarity is I did say that Nikki Haley had Karen energy at one point and, and helicopter mom energy, <laughs> both of which I stand by because I think that they're true. But, be, but I said those things because of the way that she was interacting with the other people on that stage. However, looking at it from the other perspective, T- Tim Scott was interrupting quite a bit. Um, Doug Burgum was interrupting quite a bit. And I realized as I was reflecting on this, that we don't have a corollary term for like helicopter dad energy or like what's the male equivalent of Karen? Do we have one of those? Because they, they, were, they were definitely being as confrontational and argumentative as Nikki Haley was. Right. So to be fair, I should have, I should have addressed that in a similar way. Well, we did, we did address up front that there's a lot of yelling over each other and counterproductiveness and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's several points in which we criticized the men for different things, but we don't have a word for that in our culture. It, it is interesting. One thing that we generally see in the culture, if you're a, a parent is men are usually less helicoptery than their wives. And then usually find themselves being helicoptery, right? I, Totally understand why a guy would be a helicopter dad, right? Or a helicopter parenting is a thing. Sure. There's a lot of pressures. There's a lot of commentary you can get into there. For sure. So totally sympathetic to it. But there's the, the stereotypes, I think, culturally head the other direction. Women are more stereotyped as being, you know, Johnny can't scrape his knee when he's on the playground sort of thing. Well, that's more like rub some dirt in and go play. Yeah, and mom would be more like nurturing and, like, yeah. you know, keep him safe, put right. a helmet on, whatever. Right, yeah. so like it, it's, it's hard that that liability doesn't exist in the male direction, I don't think, because our culture doesn't really reinforce that stereotype. And I think there is just, there are, despite it being 2023, the truth is there are inherent differences between men and women and femininity and masculinity and the difference in, you know, sort of being more nurturing versus more um, less nurturing, more hands-off. That's a reflection of femininity and masculinity, in my opinion. So... Uh, I don't, I think some of this stuff we can't escape and I don't think it's necessarily a problem. There's critis, you know, perhaps there isn't a fair criticism of a father being overbearing, but there are other things that we can criticize, you know, fathers for that mothers inherently don't do. Right. So I don't think it has to be, I think our modern culture, we have this instinct where everything has to, because we're all equal, quote unquote, we have to have these like one for one, right. Sort of criticisms and, I think that kind of just goes against human nature. So maybe it's something to just accept. For sure. And I would say just really quick that I do think Vivek was being a helicopter dad by saying we should ban TikTok for kids under 16. We know we had a long discussion about that last episode. We don't need to go there. But I'm like, we just talked about prohibitions. Would a prohibition on kids having TikTok work? No, definitely not. Yeah. And it definitely would be. And one of the things I think we messed up on that is we could have, we should have criticized Vivek for advocating for the federal government to do it. Obviously, that should be a state's issue. There's no constitutional empowerment to ban TikTok for kids federally. Right. That's just absurd. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. 
Okay. Well, we've even, we've even the score. Do we want to, <laughs> do we want to, <laughs> do we want to dive into some other examples of, uh, at least, at least further on the like voice and training and like seeing it as a discipline kind of question. Cause I, yeah. I, I was supposed to pull to. together. So yeah. what I do is give an example of Haley not being shrill, uh, that we have, uh, and it's just kind of the summary for the first of eight. Cause one of the things that you know, if you pay attention, as I said, I felt like she was more shrill this time is what I mean is like before I didn't get the impression that she was, had a voice that was hard to listen to and was loud and felt insecure to me. Like she was not confident in what she was saying, but she was trying to be aggressive. Mm. There's a difference between confidence aggression, which I think is embodied by what I'm going to show with Tulsi Gabbard's uh, delivery in one of the videos we'll watch versus a, what I feel like she's the energy she brought in the second debate. Uh, do you want to bring that up on the uh, first debate summary? Let's do that. Well, yeah, like that is a Christmas. Okay. So yeah, Jacket. that is a, that is that is exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. That's something you would wear downstairs to open presents on Christmas morning. <laughs> 67% of our eighth graders are not proficient in reading or math. Over 80% of our eighth graders aren't proficient in history or civics. And recently they came out and said our 12 and 13 year olds are scoring at the lowest levels they've been scoring in reading and math in decades. So the first thing we've got to do is we've got to make sure we catch our kids back up. We have to make sure they can read. A child that can't read by third grade is four times less likely to graduate high school. We need to do reading remediation. We need complete transparency in the classroom. No parent should ever wonder what's being said or taught to their child in the classroom. We need to make sure that we have school choice so that there's competition. We need to move all the programs from the federal government down to the states and let states decide what education looks like in their states. And we need to start building things in America again. Let's put vocational classes back in our high schools and let's get our kids building the things that we know that we can make. So it's a great example of like assertive talk, right? That doesn't feel and feels confident and impactful. Like, right. Each one of those points is like, boom, boom, boom. Like she hits it really hard and she doesn't do it within her nose range. She does it within her chest range of her voice. Does that make sense? And so it feels more powerful and confident as she's doing it. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by not a shrill sounding. Yes. It denotes confidence and she's sure of what she's saying, sure of herself and her message. And she doesn't sound angry. Right. That's, I think that's another factor. Yeah. I think emotion has a lot to do with it. You know, the more animated you get, the more you tend to get up into your, your head voice, like just generally speaking. False accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. So like that's a little bit more robotic, but you can kind of, you get the feeling like she really means what she's saying, even as she's kind of like relying on statistics and trying to bring up and reading a little bit and stuff like that. But where her, her tone is from is... It, 
is that space of, I feel like I'm talking to an expert who knows what they're talking about. For sure. Does that feel right? Yeah. I, I think she also just has a deeper voice overall. Mm-hmm. True. Nikki Haley's a little more nasally. She mm-hmm. just is, right? And a deeper voice implies uh, authority. It can be kind of intimidating um, rather than annoying. I think it's just, it's more powerful overall. So I, I think she just has an inherent uh, benefit there. Bit yeah. of an advantage, yeah, for yeah. sure. Contrast that to our boy here. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for mm. the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now. So that's a, you know, the guy has a, a medical condition, right? But it is a liability for his campaign. That is a reality. There is a certain group of people who are going to have a harder time engaging with what he's saying because of his voice. True. Uh, and that's a liability for Nikki Haley because she has a naturally higher voice uh, and less of a liability for like Tulsi, who has a maybe a lower voice. But each one of these things are different. I mean, it's hard to note just how big the, how much strategy goes into where to talk from when you're publicly speaking and the liabilities and then assets that women have. I'll tell you an unknown asset. If you are a male candidate running against a female, you do not ever interrupt her. Mm. Well, if you're a female candidate, you can absolutely interrupt anytime you want to. Well, it appears that in the second debate, she got that memo and, and maybe it was a tactical decision for her to do that. I mean, is that likely? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's possible that she's possible. also very, really passionate about TikTok, but uh, in, <laughs> well, in the other issues, and a lot of interrupting happens, but two dudes can absolutely interrupt each other. It doesn't look right. But the, your biggest liability as a male candidate running against a female is to look like a bully of females, which will turn off other dudes. Mm. Right. Even if you're even if you're a Republican and you're determined mostly by male electoral votes, you still need females to win primaries. That's absolutely critical. I, I mean, why am I using the word female and male men and women? Uh, <laughs> you need men and women to, to win. And so the women will see you as a bully. Men will see you. But if you if you interrupt, so you got to be very careful about how you there's a bigger liability for the dude in his interactions with uh, a woman competitor. Well, the women, women do not have that competition. Now, they do have this challenge of coming across as trill, right, possibly, if they speak from the wrong part of their voice and it gets into their nose and they, sound, and they start talking as if they're not sure what they're saying. Which may be physically necessary to get the amplitude in your voice enough to speak over a room full of cacophonous men shouting at each other, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that could just be a, a reality of the situation. Yep. Yeah. And it's just, it's just a liability to the campaign that you have as a candidate. So you try to work to mitigate that through a practice, you know, and there's like voice coaches that campaigns hire for this very thing. I mean, um, uh, 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 who was it? It was actually in uh, the, the white pill. Margaret Thatcher hired a, a voice coach, right? To help her lower her voice so that she can come across better for her electoral campaigns. That isn't, doesn't mean that it, it doesn't, that isn't a criticism of her, right? That's a reaction to reality. And I, and I guess one of the things, um, you know, the criticism that was brought up by our listener, and we can, we can move on if we want to, was that we should be careful about new listeners who might come in and hear us say that, and then they might not listen, and we want to grow the podcast. 
totally get that. I totally understand that. But I think the overall topic is an interesting one because we want to make sure that we can differentiate ought from is, right? I'm not saying what her, I'm saying the ought here is she needs to watch out for this because this might turn off some voters, right? And, you know, because this is a real liability. Um, and then second to that, well, I would never want to come across as being sexist. I really take that very seriously. I'm, I'm a father to a daughter. I have a wife. I'm like, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who wants to come across as something as broadly understood to be accepting because that's who I am. Um, uh, and I wouldn't want anyone to think otherwise. But I'm glad we could talk about this and we could have Kat come in and tell us just how sexist I am or not. And, uh, and we could dive into the topic. Um, that's not why we had you come in. <laughs> She's on the schedule. Now, <laughs> she was on the schedule before this came up. Okay. No, I, I think, I think we, we did that justice and, and thank you to our, our friends who brought this feedback to us because I do think it's an important subject to dive into and it's going to help us improve the podcast going forward. And if you would like to offer us feedback as well, join the discord link in the description. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about... Uh, let's talk about... Speaker McCarthy. Speaker McCarthy. Yeah. Former Speaker Former McCarthy. Former Speaker McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the spoken McCarthy. No. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, yeah, so for the first time in American history, the Speaker of the House has been deposed by the chamber, which was done by eight Republicans and all the Democrats voting to uh, no confidence in the speaker to remove him from the chair. So uh, to get the background, we've got to zoom back to January. Now, if you're a regular listener program, you absolutely should not be surprised by this at all, right? We've been talking about it for some time. There was 17 something votes for who was speaker. Part of that was a big negotiation by the conservatives to say, hey, we want to get back to regular budget order. What that means is in 1979, they said, hey, we're not going to just do this tradition of how we do the budget. We're going to put it into actual rules for us to follow. And since 1979, we've had the same set of rules, which is 12 bills, one from each committee, single issue bills, meaning governing like a single issue per bill. And then we additionally that 72 hours to read the bills and bet and amend and all that kind of stuff where you can allow amendments. We haven't really allowed amendments since the Ryan speakership, which was before the iPad was invented. Oh, amendments. No, 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 oh, okay. no, no. Ryan was I just, that's always a thing you invoke. No, so no, that's the last to... time he passed a regular budget. Oh, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's like it. an actual <laughs> before the iPad. Long was before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Long, long before. Uh, so with that, the conservatives demanded these reforms and then the, Speaker said, yes, you can do this. So Saturday, we had the big government crisis. The government was going to shut down. The speaker was asking for a continuing resolution. Just to remind everybody, a continuing resolution is when they say, we're going to fund the government at the current levels plus inflation for the next year or amount of time. This was only going to be one more month. Now, the trick here is if you do extend it one more month, then you have more time to try to pass a bigger CR. And the conservative said, no, I will not vote for a CR. We're going to do the appropriations. 
They passed five appropriations bills. They had one fail with the agriculture bill, mostly because moderate Republicans shut it down using Democrats to shut it down, uh, voting against specific changes on like funding of abortions and stuff like that. Which was in an agriculture bill? In ag, yeah, yeah, yeah. Abortion was in the ag bill. Yeah, yeah. Why? Good question. Okay, moving on. Because <laughs> people lobby to have their piece in each bill. Unfortunately. Yeah, government's big, man. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't just that. It was it was a whole bunch of stuff that was in there. I can't remember all the stuff to it. But the important thing was it failed. But there was still amendments being proposed in each one of these. Amendments being voted on. Congress was operating like a legislature. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, in the middle of all that, uh, Rep. Jamal Brown, Democrat from New York, pulled a fire alarm, which was hilarious because he said it was, you guys see this? Yes. Yeah. He said he thought, he thought that like the doors were locked and that this would open the doors <laughs> by pulling con- the fire alarm. He was just confused. Yeah. It's an easy mistake. It is. You're right. You're absolutely right. It looks like a door. Well, it's, okay. So it is. Uh, so people are accusing him of trying to delay votes, which makes sense in a sense because you think of the Capitol complex is a, is is all integrated security wise and stuff like that. But it's a fire alarm, not a security alarm. Um, and then he pulls it, and it didn't really slow anything down or stop anything. Anyways, uh, not not substantially. Did anyone actually leave the building? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. There was there wasn't that much like unpacking of the consequences therein in any of the articles I read. But, I mean, it is funny, you know, because he was literally like trying to interrupt Congress. Uh, not trying. Or, or I, I can't he was just intent. late and he didn't know how to get through the door. And so he pulled the thing, which is just crazy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think it might imply that the progressive caucus was banking on a government shutdown and maybe wanted it. Right. Mm. They can press wise. They use that. Democrats traditionally use that to their advantage. So, you know. I think they were, he was intentionally trying to disrupt things and slow the process down. Oh, interesting. So you think it might've been his motivation to cause the government shutdown by interrupting the process of getting to a deal yeah, such that they could use it for publicity. I personally, yeah, I think the Democrats were pissed that the government continued to stay open. I think probably a lot of them were banking on it closing. They do love using that against the Republicans. Totally. I mean, all the agencies had sent out guidance except for the national park service, which is the one that my organization was waiting on. And we're like, God damn it, please send it out. (laughs) But uh, anyway, so go on. But yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I'm not saying he didn't do it for that reason. It's just that he claims it was an accident. Right. And we don't have any evidence and, you know, hard to know the heart of man. But he, if, if he did get confused and you're one of the constituents, you'd be like, you've been there 10 months, man. Like, you yeah, think you'd know how to get to where you do your job. Yeah, it's not, this is not the first day of school. You know where all your classes are, okay? Yeah, right. I'm sorry. It, the Capitol complex is very confusing, but he was going to the outside, which is very simple. Right, if you walk out, I've, I've actually worked in the Cannon office building, so I know this. There's only a couple exits. The exits all go outside, and when you go outside, you... Capital. When you walk that direction, it's not it's not challenging. So I'm very confused at how this could possibly be confusing. If this was personally. Fetterman, I'd maybe believe it. <laughs> Ooh, yes, <laughs> true, true. But you'd have yeah. to be a complete moron to get confused by that. So a whole other media cycle got started out of this because he put out a memo to other Democrats saying the way to respond to this is just to call the opposition Nazis. <laughs> yeah, he tweeted about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only reason for someone to say. That's a weird thing to do. It would be as if you were a nationalist socialist and you wanted to kill everybody. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Or take back the Rhineland. I'm not sure what sort of Nazis he's looking at. (laughs) This 
really is just a circus, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> we did it. Our, 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 our thumbnail was Donald Trump fighting a bunch of clowns, right? And this is, this is what it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he, he kind of is one of the clowns, too. He's just the orange one. <laughs> he's just, he's just one. in face paint already. So, so the, on Saturday, they passed a CR. And the CR pretty much was sans um, Ukraine spending. And it basically said, we're not going to do that. Well, that was the major sticking point for a lot of like funding the DOD and all this other stuff. And then the, you know, basically with the government shutdown looming, there was a deal cut between Biden and the speaker and the Senate. And it was past this. And then there was a secret deal that was suggested by several people. And it is now, I think on the level of confirmed oh, yeah. that to fund Ukraine uh, separate from the CR. So, uh, with the knowledge of the secret deal coming out and the CR, of course, happening despite conservatives' best efforts to stop it, the threat from the very beginning was an older rule changed by Nancy Pelosi back when she was speaker to say, if you, it used to be that if you wanted to vote to uh, have no confidence in the speaker, you needed to have the majority of your caucus agree with you. But what this allowed was for any individual to propose a no confidence vote. That was the Pelosi rule. And with that, Pelosi, according to rumors, I'm not sure if this is confirmed yet, but according to rumors, said, hey, don't change that, McCarthy, when you come in as speaker, and I will forever, you know, uh, tell my caucus not to vote to get rid of you. Oh. And then... So leave yourself vulnerable, but I promise I'll protect you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then clearly all the Democrats voted with, was eight Republicans to yep. to get him out so clearly she did not keep that agreement if that was indeed the case or she even had the power to do that sure that's the question i mean like the democrats have a lot of power but it's easy to look at um either side as having this monolithic military-like discipline and structure and that's just never true well that's really so. interesting oh sorry cat go ahead oh i was just gonna say well um you know aoc went to twitter prior to this right and said that she would vote against mccarthy and so some folks viewed that as like you know a a call to, um, or like a warning to the rest of the Democrats that the progressive caucus would, um, would vote to oust him. And therefore, if they want to stay united, they're going to have to probably get behind, um, the progressive, uh, instinct there. Interesting. I mean, I can see their motivation as just wanting to see the Republican party in a bit of chaos, sort of being the prevailing narrative that they would want to push. Um, but I find it interesting that you mentioned that, 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 that supposed deal took place or that unspoken deal between McCarthy and Pelosi took place because once McCarthy was, was voted out, it was like the next day, the interim speaker who was previously before the session began, right, selected, secretly selected to uh, replace McCarthy by McCarthy himself, right? He wrote a memo to Nancy Pelosi's office booting her out of her, of her like secret lair or whatever it is like the speakers <laughs> yeah. i don't know what it's called like the secret office or something yeah, like that yeah, yeah. which is interesting a eh? because that seems like a little bit of retribution if that is indeed the case mm-hmm. and secondly it points to something amounting to an agreement or friendship or something going on between mccarthy and pelosi for him being the new speaker allowing her to stay in that office because mm-hmm. that should be his as the speaker correct yeah i think that's some i, I kind of missed that story to be honest I, I think my understanding is and who knows if this is true or not but that there's like multiple spare offices 
And so she was just using one of those spare offices and it's like not unheard of to have former speakers. She wasn't in McCarthy's office. She, oh, she was wasn't. in like another office. Oh, okay. So it was blown out of portion. That's, that's probably the Republicans trying to make the Democrats look bad. Well, there is a lot of gamesmanship of, around who gets what office. Sure. That's a real, sure. that's a real yeah. thing. But, um, and there are some offices that are terrible and no one wants to be in and certain buildings that people don't want to be in. And there are certain offices that are like privileges that, you know, mm. are, the parties and the power structures used to get the benefits of that, of those offices. So it doesn't surprise me. That's for sure. Hmm. So we now have an interim speaker who immediately said, we're going to take a week off and everyone can cool, cool their jets back at home. So uh, they're rather than going right into the speaker debates, they're going to be taking a week off and coming back on Wednesday. Um, Donald Trump has already been proposed to be the next speaker <laughs> within hours of <laughs> McCarthy resigning, getting kicked out. Uh, someone said, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch him. And then, so on, uh, today or yesterday that got confirmed, uh, by Newsweek. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's really the story. Um, there's been some reporting from Laura Loomer and others about like the nature of the speakership and fundraising and how the, like the joint fundraising committees find the speaker and kind of what the fallouts of this might be. Like, who is he going to be giving the same amount of support for various different Republicans? Why did, uh, um, a lot of people who are people normally think as anti-establishment did not join the eight conservatives in this, uh, why some of the eight conservatives are actually not that conservative, right? Um, just things like that, that are quite interesting. Because it doesn't come down in any ideological lines. It wasn't like the Trump people versus it was, you know, very conservative people like Gates, Rosendale, folks like that. And there was some other people like Nancy Mace and other folks that were not considered to be in that same kind of wing of the party. Interesting. What what does this change mean for the looming government shutdown and this whole the budget process? It, it probably well, I mean, the appropriations committee can continue to meet. Right. And so the, the only question is, is it's now up to the interim speaker to move bills to the floor and to follow through on the promises of what McCarthy made to the conservatives. He was picked by McCarthy. So is there any expectation he's going to act any differently than McCarthy other than maybe just out of self-preservation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, might be his only motivation at this point. Hard to say. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Because then he could become the shortest ever serving speaker if he speaker. gets booted out in 10 days <laughs> that would be funny it would be pretty interesting um but yeah the, the 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 media narrative here has been absolutely crazy right and you know part of our mission cut through the media misdirection it is absolutely absurd to see this as a personal thing of course there are always confusing internal motivations for every individual and human being a lot of folks did not trust mccarthy right off the bat he needed to earn their faith and trust but the record shows that the, he did not follow through on his word to the people he said he would be leading. And are we that surprised that there would be consequences of that? And what kind of guy wouldn't hold that person accountable? Right? It would take someone who would require, first, a good place in the party, and second, their principle. And so I think for a lot of these guys, it was like, hey, I really want to see this appropriations process followed. I really want 72 hours. I really want single issue bills. I don't want to see a CR. You went back on your word, time to pay the consequence. Well, a lot of those guys got elected by constituencies that are very passionate about, you know, fiscal responsibility, right? So they've got re-election to think about as well. They got to do the the will of their people, right? Right. Now, just to play devil's advocate, and I'll preface this with saying that I think uh, I'm all for us getting back to normal order. And um, I think I read that it's been five in the past five decades, we've only passed up an appropriations bill, like all of them on time four times hmm. in the past like 50 years. 
which is crazy. That's insane. Right? Like, that's a problem. We can't just do the omnibus thing where you get a, abortion and farm bills all mixed up together and everyone's got their little favored piece in there and the whole thing swells and is unsustainable. Totally down with moving away from that, we should. And if that means burning the house down, maybe that's what needs to happen. However, the Republicans don't control the Senate. They have a very slim majority in the House. They don't control the White House. I kind of think it's a fair criticism to say McCarthy wasn't able to pass any of these appropriations bills because, you know, this gang of eight so-called were unwilling to compromise in the way that practically they would have had to compromise and give some to the Democrats in order to get any of these things passed. Yeah. A a problem with that mental model is it seems the branches is equal when it comes to appropriations. It isn't. The House is the only one that can appropriate can origin appropriations bills. Therefore, they have the power to pass appropriations bills and the Senate doesn't, neither does the president. So if the president wants to, the, the, the bid from the conservatives was, oh, that's what you want? Well, given that you weaponized the government against us, given that you have uh, endowed Ukraine spending without endowing border security during a shutdown, giving all these actions, we're going to take a hard line. And it's their power and right as congressional members to do so. And they're saying, no, you're going to play that kind of hardball. You want to make us domestic terrorists. Well, we're going to send you those bills and you can veto them. And if you veto them, then the government shuts down. If you don't veto them, the government will shut down, but it will be off our responsibility and it'll be yours. And that was the strategy forced on the Republican Congress by the conservatives. Yes, totally get that force is what this is all about. This is all politics, man. This isn't a thing where you get to go along just by getting along. If you want to win, the other side wins every time and the conservatives are always on their back foot and the libertarians can never actually wield any power because they refuse to actually put people into difficult circumstances and then stand on their principle. And these are a bunch of guys who are going to do it. So, I mean, I personally think the best case for them, and I think I believe this myself, is that the best negotiating position was to pass them and pass them in July, not you know, when they could have been passed, right? I mean, they passed the DOD SOS back in July, and that was the only one out of appropriation they made to the floor because Speaker McCarthy is the only one who decides what gets to the floor. So Speaker McCarthy was interrupting the process yeah. of this proper regular order from going on. It was all his choice. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy because the Speaker has always had more power than the, um, than the Senate, you know, uh, President. Because the because it's such a large body. I mean, compared to even most legislatures, except for I think North North New Hampshire and stuff like that, it's a very large, you know, um, legislative body. So it's normal for there to be more power in order to keep things moving uh, when you have that much diversity of people. But still, um, given that he has complete control of what gets to the floor, he has complete control over how fast these committees meet, how much money they have to do the things. He has tremendous amount of power to prioritize. And so when they say things like, oh, well, the Biden investigation will get interrupted. The Biden investigation, they should put subpoenas out months ago. We've been saying for a long time how much evidence there was in this space, right? But they move at the pace that they move at, right? And ultimately, as leader, he's responsible for that. I will say he's clearly failed in keeping the Republican Party as like a solid coalition. And that's what that's what's given the Democrats the success that they've had is that they are they're united. If AOC really did get the rest of the party to like vote against McCarthy because the Democrats would rather stay united than have like the, you know, I won't 
can I swear? Yes. Shit show <laughs> that the Republicans, you whoa, know, the spectacle. Whoa, whoa young lady. <laughs> that kind of language up in here. Dude, don't be a helicopter dad, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I mean, they're relishing in this, right? This chaos, right? right? All these headlines have distracted from the criticisms of Biden and, and the Democrats. And, and, you know, the Democrats have always been really good at staying together and by doing so they can wield more power and they get more done. And the Republicans historically haven't been that great about that. And I think in part, and maybe I'm biased in saying this, I think it's in part because maybe they're more principled. So there's more infighting because there's more people who actually like believe in what they're standing for. Right. Um, it's not just like, you know, sort of cold, hard politics. Um, but if you want to get stuff done, you need to be a solid coalition. And McCarthy obviously has failed at that. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't I, I think it is time for someone else to lead. I get that. And, and I, I my only my only quibble is that there is there is an there is an ease to growing government that's harder to cutting government. And so I think it, it there's a natural division about that mm-hmm. question with the Republicans that will never be as big of a question for the Democrats. Simply because as the philosophies have separated, there is still a huge contingent of Democrats and Republicans who are establishment, whose primary motivation of being a congressman is the prestige of being a congressman, right? Uh, that every time they you know, go to their office, someone says, oh, your jokes are so funny. And are you losing weight today, sir? <laughs> they say that every day. Stroke the ego. Right. Mm-hmm. Or they go home and they're the big man. They're the congressman. They go back to the Rotary Club and they're just so important and, and, and special. Right, I think that temptation exists on both sides of the aisle, and there is a ring of progressive Democrats who, you know, can get tempted into the you know establishment Democrats, and there's that wing of conservative Republicans that can get tempted into that that as well. But that the conservatives have a much harder job because you can be an establishment Democrat and still get a lot of your priorities done. But once you're an establishment Republican, cutting government is so much harder than just adding more radical stuff to the existing government program. Think of it like a wrench. A wrench only turns one way. Like a socket? A socket wrench, yeah. yeah. It only turns one way. And you turn back to the other, it just doesn't go back, right? To flip that switch to get torque the other direction is much harder than in the direction where the state already exists. Where So growing the state is always easier. And, and, and then uh, not to mention the, the cover, right? In 2013, we had passed all the appropriations bills. They were sitting in the Senate. But... Well, I'm most, I'm sorry. I, I, if I remember, it was like a nine of 13. It was like 90% of the government was funded, way more than 90. Um, and it was still the media saying, oh, well, Republicans, Republicans, Republicans. Because at the time, you know, the media was largely, you know, the, a monopoly. They're not as much a monopoly anymore. It's true. I mean, their power is waning. But I think you're very right. The, the directionality of growth of government is a train that is so far down a track. It's like nearly impossible to pull it the other direction. And there is this temptation of the uniparty to just continue to do that because it's a lot easier to offer people more stuff than it is to say, Hey, we're going to actually have to tighten the belt. We're going to have to do some things that are going to be very uncomfortable, you know, cutting Medicare and Medicaid and social security and and all that sort of thing. Like can't even talk about it because it's so it's a third rail. And this is even way simpler than that. This is, this is, we are going to take in five trillion and we can't spend seven. Sorry. Right. You know, it's that simple. And then we're, and then the best, the most conservative budget is cutting it down to, uh, uh, to $600 billion deficit, not even a balanced budget, a $600 billion deficit is the most conservative proposal. And we can't even do that. Right. If that is a hard line on Democrats, 
it, if you're looking at it objectively, it should be you have the party of deficits and the party of fiscal responsibility, and we should get even coverage. But that's not how it works at all, right? And so given that, you have to, if you're going to disrupt that, and if you believe disrupting that is the only thing that will save the country from much more inflation and a runaway budget problem where we are spending a trillion dollars annual on just the debt, then why wouldn't you shut down the government? Why wouldn't you get rid of the speaker? Like all, a lot of things become far more realistic and more brutal in your negotiations than it was even two, three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the media is still playing the game like as if it's nothing's changed, but with high interest rates and the amount of deficit that we built up just in the annual like coverage of the interest payments on the debt, it can't be the same game and it's going to have to change. It might not happen this year, but it's got to happen soon. Because once you get your, a third of your total spending is eaten up just on your credit card payments, your house is broke. So, or I'm sorry, a fifth. Yeah. All right. It's wild. Enough of that story. Yeah. I'm tired of that. All yeah. Right. We've been talking about it every week for too many weeks. I'm tired of that story because it's just like, ugh. Well, if I, I would love to not talk about it. <laughs> yeah, please. Know? It's going to come back around and oh, what was no. it, 45 days? So we got yeah. like another... 40 or so to go yeah we got well i don't know what is that like five episodes we'll talk about it again (laughs) in six episodes (laughs) (laughs) newsweek you brought this one to us do you want to summarize the the story for us sure yeah so uh newsweek released um sort of a bombshell report um uh, outlining um how really in depth how the fbi has um basically created a new category for targeting um, domestic terrorists. And when you look at the details of it um, and sort of the uh, language change of their official designations, um, they're very clearly um, targeting political enemies. And it's one political enemy and political party, and that is um, Trump supporters or MAGA Republicans, as Biden likes to call them. Um, and the Newsweek story, we can probably link in the show notes, I imagine. Um, it, we can't do that. We're not the technology. Impossible. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't help it. Asking way too much. <laughs> what am I, a wizard? <laughs> um, Hacker man. The, uh, I, well, I, so I would encourage everyone to read the story. It's, it's a long article. Um, the journalists obviously did a lot of due diligence, interviewed a lot of people, um, a lot of people within the FBI, some willingly spoke on record, some remained anonymous. Naturally, the anonymous folks were more candid um, <laughs> and critical than the ones who spoke on record. Makes total sense. Um, but it's pretty disturbing. Um, so if, and if we wanna dive into it, I can fill in some details. I also use these really nice, like very complimentary um, <laughs> pictures. Right. Super stylized, wow. right? Like <laughs> the bl- the red background really does a lot. Yeah. If, you're, if you're listening on uh on audio only, <clears throat> Eric, um so the uh the <laughs> the red it's like this super blood red background with mm-hmm. like it's a like bunch Nikki of people Haley's with their faces jacket. scribbled That's like Nikki out. Haley's jacket exactly. <laughs> it is. That's where she got her inspiration. How could you? <laughs> and there's a bunch of people and like one guy's wearing like body armor type thing. Like it's 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 a rally, but they make it look way is this from January 6th? Is that what yeah. this is from? Yeah, this oh, is from okay. like in front of the Capitol. Someone's doing an okay sign. But Let's they definitely stylize it. And also, I have to say, and like I'm half joking, but when I saw this and I saw like the the okay symbol, someone's going to take a still of that and say I'm like a Nazi. But, <laughs> oh, for um, sure. You're done for. When I saw those, I thought, fed. <laughs> 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 Who okay, does that? Okay, yeah. fed. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, it's it's a long end, but it's it is it is a really good read. I, I did think it was interesting. One of the things that was frustrating to me about it, and maybe I missed it, um, was there was a bunch of stories similar to this back in like twenty twenty two, right? Where the Gadsden flag, the Project Veritas put out this memo saying the FBI had said that the Gadsden flag and Second Amendment support was indicator of potentially being a terrorist functionally for their investigations. Yeah. Is this like I an extension that. of that or is this like a, the same thing or a different thing? I think what's sort of revealed that's different here is um, the, so the FBI changed their definitions of domestic terrorism hmm. um, to basically uh, sort of, they broadened it to encompass politics in a way that it hadn't been before. Um, so one example of that, they redefined the acronym is AGAV, which stands for anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremism. Um, and it originally, the definition had been furtherance of ideological agendas, which is obviously, I mean, that's still like wide sweeping and kind of vague, but they've changed it to, quote, furtherance of political and or social agendas. Um, and so that term political has now been inserted in there. Um, and that makes it easier for them to target specific political parties versus just, you know, a dangerous ideology. Um, so instead of just like Nazism or something or fascism, they can go potentially target Republicans, right? One of the interesting things here is that unlike a lot of Europe after World War II, America never banned the Nazi party. Right. Why? Because of freedom of speech, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why are we doing it now? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and that doesn't make me a supporter of Nazis. It just makes me like a supporter of the American tradition. The ACLU had famously in what the 60s or 70s had stood up and defended Nazis rights to speak and hold rallies. And they and their stance was we don't support Nazism. However, we support every American's right to free speech. Sounds like a Nazi to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, you're right. Right. I, 1978. I, 1978. Yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right, David, that um, uh, October 2022 is when this new subcategory was was uh, created. So Newsweek mm. is just, you know, Project Veritas was right early on and mm. ignored. And now Newsweek's catching up. Confirming so, Project Veritas. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, this would seem to confirm what I think previously would have been derided as sort of a right-wing conspiracy theory that, that the, the intelligence state is being weaponized against conservative minded people. This would seem to substantiate that there's evidence to suggest that would it not? And what's totally. worse is it isn't even just like conservative mind. It's like a very specific, especially if you're doing MAGA, a very specific like partisan political force. True. Right. I mean, I can get like if the best interpretation of a very evil idea, right? If I could try to steal Amanda real quick of saying, Hey, if they have a gas and flag and they wear the skull and bones mask thing, and they have all the tactical vests and all the tactical stuff, maybe they're going to go shoot a politician. Right. And, and you say like that's these are things to look for. And you're just trying to guide some new agent into understanding what an anti-government extremist might look like. That might go shoot somebody. And you're trying to like stop an actual crime, right. By training somebody that's different than this though. Yeah, this you is I mean? this, this is 100% just a, a, you know looking for a criminal to fit a crime that hasn't even happened, right? I mean it's it, it, to me it's indicative of what we were just talking about this one-way ratcheting of the growth of government because it's sort of like, you know, with the Patriot Act being the, you know, the outcome of uh 2001 of, of September 11th, 
that which was initially pointed at is Islamic terrorism, this tool that we had once the wars in the Middle East sort of wound down in the last however many years, we realized it needed a new direction, right? And it, it sort of pointed inward to, mm-hmm. towards their political Another enemies, great right? example of how your foreign policy ultimately determines your internal politics. They always, they always relate. Um, it's called, they often called in foreign policy the boomerang effect, right? Where you throw out the boomerang out, out, outside of your state and it runs back around and hits you. Um, that's right. And I, I think that there's um, the additional wrinkle to that is how often the FBI is not in charge of trying to stop or stop criminals after the fact they've done something, but rather to set criminals up for crimes that they otherwise might not have even tried to commit, such as the Whitmere cases and how many of those people have gotten off on acquittals. Um, I think there are three for three are actually acquitted at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And the majority of the people involved in that were undercover FBI agents. The people who actually initiated the plan and organized the initial meetings and literally like lured people into these meetings with free food and booze were FBI undercover agents. And even like the New York Times reported on this and said, you know, at a certain point you might have to ask like, who spawned this plan? Was it the FBI? And can you really blame the people who were sort of entrapped, you know? Um, yeah, and I mean, is, is there a way to even to call it like entrapment? I mean, because I'm sure they've got some way around that because they apparently entrapment's really hard to prove in the court of law so i think there some of the the people who were um arrested and tried for this that was their defense um and i suppose i mean some of them got acquitted right and and there was at least one case where the jury uh yeah like was undecided about the the person and whether they were really guilty or not Hmm. so i guess maybe to some effect entrapment was found but um it's hard to prove legally. So, but it's a completely evil way to run your government to be clear. Like it's completely wrong to use the, the monopoly of force and then use that to entrap people in order to get them committed crime. They wouldn't otherwise do. Absolutely. And then getting them and then saying we've done our job. And when it was Muslim, you know, people where they would say, Hey, you know, declare for ISIS. And then be like, Oh, I I want you to be my friend. So I'm going to declare for ISIS. And then they arrest that person. That was wrong then. And the left was outraged about it. They should be as outraged about this because this is a misuse of the judicial system, especially for a political purpose that it was Whitmar during COVID. And then she used that as a reason to get reelected. And I would say too, and I know this is kind of a long shot, but it's, it's important to note that like systems that are put in place that you can wield against your political enemies can also be turned back on you. So anyone on the left in this case, who's looking at this going, yeah, get those evil MAGA people. Be careful what you wish for, because these things can, the pendulum can swing and, and, really what we should be looking at is do we want government to be able to use this kind of force against its own people? Is that the kind of country we want to live in? And what kind of country is that? Mm-hmm. It's not a Republic as we've said many, many times. Also, I think just politically, this is um, the fact that the FBI in October, 2022 made this, this distinction and this change um, at the same time that the president of the United States, Biden was making statements like this one, for example, quote, Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans are a threat to the very soul of this country. MAGA Republicans aim to question not only the legitimacy of past elections, but elections being held now and into the future. So arguing that they're, that they're a threat, right? I mean, he said that a million times, that Trump's a threat to democracy, but not just Trump, Trump supporters are too. So the fact that like the head of the government is 
coming out and saying like, I have political enemies and they are a threat to this country at the same time that his DOJ and his FBI are bending the rules to make it easier to go after those specific people. I mean, optically that's, it's pretty clear what's being done, right? I mean, this is political persecution. It's Um, indicative of how secure they feel in their position. I think the way they feel like they've got it all sewn up. They've got the media on their side, broadcasting what they want. They've got the intelligence state doing their bidding and the justice department doing you know, they're bidding. He, he, he and the administration clearly don't feel like they need to be very covert about any of this. At least they didn't. No, they're, they're, they've been very bold about it. I think they've overestimated their ability to be so bold, right? Because alternative media like this podcast are increasingly becoming the way people consume information. So they don't have as big of an iron grip as they once had. Um, but they're able to wield a lot of power and create a lot of havoc in the interim, right? Like we're at the beginning stages of having an alternative model and the old guard isn't going to go down without a fight. So things could get pretty ugly. Um, so join the discord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I had just like a couple other things I wanted to point out from this. Um, one is a quote from an anonymous FBI official who was a bit more candid in the piece. Um, Can't do that. Can't have anonymous sources. When Seymour <laughs> Hirsch does that, it's wrong. Right. It means everything is false if you say that. In fact, the only time you can have anonymous sources is when it's the Trump White House. Then it's okay. <laughs> right. But when we don't have Russiagate. Exactly. Then, <laughs> then it's fine. If it's the Steele dossier, fine. Right. But Seymour or News... Sorry, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. No, you're good. It's like, David, you're interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> you're such a misogynist. I've been waiting to make that point, though. Come on. <laughs> you can wait a little longer, pal. <laughs> so the FBI official says that, uh, quote... This is not media hype, but it's also not easily quantifiable. Are we talking just a few thousand Proud Boy types, or are we talking 30% of the country that are core Trump voters? Are we talking extremists bent on political violence, or just a lot of disgruntled and frustrated citizens? I don't know the answer, and I can assure you the answer isn't in any secret intelligence that the government possesses. So I think that just exemplifies, like, how undefined this is, right? And, and, um... And how dangerous it is that if you're targeting people who are potentially just disgruntled citizens that aren't happy with the status quo and want a different president, that's a complete violation of all of our rights, right? Um, and, you know, these people aren't actually... The other thing that's worth noting is that there's been a handful of numbers that have been really widely cited, including by um, Attorney General Merrick uh, Garland, uh, and that is that sort of these numbers try to explain how... Um, violent extremism from the far right has been increasing across the country. Uh, and some of those include that domestic terrorism related cases grew by 357% from, um, 1,981 in fiscal year 2013 to 9,049 in fiscal year 2021. Um, when you look into that, it's actually quite interesting. Um, a significant portion, like the majority of the increase took place between 2020 and 2021. Um, the majority of those were surround, were uh, the result of um, the, all the protests and rioting after George Floyd's death. So arguably not Trump supporters. I was right? going to say, yeah, how are they defining like right-wing domestic terrorism in this case? Well, I think they're using this number to imply that it's like in the context they they imply that it's right-wing domestic terrorism threats Mm -hmm. 
the bulk of the numbers were in the aftermath of George Floyd. So if you actually look at the data, which is what Newsweek did, you would assume that these are actually like Antifa no, left wing activists. All that was yeah, January first. Yeah. I don't know if you were right. talking about. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing, the full investigations, the number of full investigations that actually led to arrests uh-huh. were pretty much um, the the total number was uh, one thousand four hundred and forty six. Hmm. The total number of, of full investigations that led to arrests after January 6th was 1,146. So that's off by 100. Mm. So it's pretty much, it was the George Floyd protests, which are left-wing activists, and then it's the people that were arrested and pursued after January 6th. Mm. Outside of those things, one has nothing to do with MAGA Republicans, and the other is that you know hyper-specific, unique event. There is no increase in right-wing domestic terrorism. Right. Like, so if you really look into the numbers, um, the threat is overblown and there's more quotes in the piece um, from the anonymous source saying that he thinks that this is overblown and that the term domestic terrorism is not appropriate. Um, But it's just it's just a way for them to sort of goose these numbers, put those numbers out there so journalists can quote them and then in the, you know, use those in the context of talking about right wing extremism or Donald Trump. And it gives this impression that there's this dramatic increase in, you know, proud boys just plaguing the country um, when in reality, that's just that's not what's actually happening. And if I remember uh, 2016 and 2020, right a lot of the violence that are happening here is a two-sided violence situation where you have Antifa shows up to protest a thing and the Proud Boys show up or the right. Proud Boys show up and then Antifa does and then they fight. Yeah. And there's this street brawl weird thing that we're going through mm-hmm. where um, four years ago, uh, before 2016 rather, so 2014, 2012, 2010, to have any fights at any protest ever was really weird. And then all of a sudden it was like, phalanxes of people working together to fight other people in our streets. Why? What happened? Like that is a deep cultural question that we just aren't reconciling with at all. Like we're going to get an explanation from somewhere in the history books, but I don't think it's going to be as satisfactory as an orange man ran for president, right? It just isn't, I don't get it. I think the left bears and like the deep state establishment which is a real thing unelected bureaucrats that never get fired um and tend to lean one way politically i think their three and a half year assault on donald trump with the russiagate story which proved to be you know almost entirely fabricated um i think that one led people on the left who still believe it to this day Mm -hmm. to think that russia had infiltrated our elections and put an illegitimate person in power. If you really think that's what's happening, you should, amen, balls to the walls, do whatever you have to do to make that, you know, to, to reverse that, right? Like, if you really think that's happening, that's a threat to the country. So you can understand how people on the left became extreme because of that. And then the folks on the right that realized that it was just, you know, a, a political ploy to undermine this presidency, that's also terrifying that there's, you know, this entrenched unelected apparatus that has wields that much power that they can try to unseat a fairly elected president. That's going to radicalize people on the right. Mm. So I, I mean, I think that like our, the bureaucrats in Washington, DC bear a lot of the responsibility of radicalizing the country. And I think they did it for short term political gain and now, you know, they have to deal with the fallout of that. And um, 
Hell yes. You nailed that. That was awesome. That was <laughs> perfect. That was, that was perfect. You absolutely slayed it. And I think it's, it's so incredibly dangerous what has happened and, and not, I mean, government aside, the fact that there is, let's just say half the country that is radicalized in one direction, feeling like the other side is screwing them over and another side, another half of the country that has been so filled with hatred by the news media for three years, like you say, that they would, they would never accept another Trump presidency. They would forever think that that was Russian election interference. The fact that you have these two enormous bodies of, of people, like two halves of the country, so willing to go to blows with the other half is actually terrifying. Cause I think that is like, honestly, ultimately the goal of sort of this globalist communist you know, cabal of people. I'm not, I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. Right. But like the group of people who are interested in seeing the United States taken down from its position of power, whoever you want to call that, right. Our adversaries in the world, how could they do that? How better could they do that? But divide the population, have them fight amongst themselves to the point where we can't get anything done. We can't pass a budget. All we want to do is hate the other side and, and, and not realize the humanity of the people next to us just because they voted for someone that we don't think is good. Mm. That to me is really, really bad. And as individuals, I think we need to take time to really just step back from the circus that we're observing and that we find ourselves embroiled in and take a step back from the ideas that we find ourselves identifying with and say, look at the end of the day, if I'm a, if I'm a Biden supporter, Trump supporters are good people. They are. And you should know that and remember that. And if you're a Trump supporter, people that voted for Biden are also good people, right? They just have different views, different ideas of how they want the country to, to go. And that's fine. That's actually really good. We need to be civil with one another. A great book that, that anyone should uh, definitely check out if you want to get uh, really into that space is, is um, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. One of the things you realize that politics is actually an, uh, a secondary order effect of underlying biological and personality um, things that aren't really chosen uh, by most people. Most people, you can cultivate a more open character by specifically choosing to cultivate a more open character. Uh, but there are a lot of things like disgust responses and things like that that are very organic and like completely lower down on the order of your brain. Uh, that determine a lot of either conservatism or open more liberalism, um, whatever those words mean in this today's world. <laughs> um, the the interesting thing about that book is that it will give you a much more much greater an insight and appreciation for the other side about the underlying moral drives of where those thoughts come from. Um, while I'm not a super conservative person uh, by nature. Um, I tend to, if I take a test on it, I tend to rank very high openness and I have very low disgust responses. Um, reading that book helped me understand why people have those disgust responses and how it's not necessarily something that they're just governing to choose to be that way, but rather they're just thinking, you know, that way. Uh, and then lastly, um, you know, one of the things that I've always felt like that the philosophy of liberty can contribute to this entire thing and always has been there as an asset in the American tradition is how much a peaceful approach to this solves the problem. If it's all just peaceful speech and open dialogue and, and in this, these differences can be debated openly without a media like clamp down in the middle, how a lot of these things solve themselves, right? If we could ever actually debate the Russia, you know, hysteria, 
um, we might be able to bring facts to that situation, debate those facts, and then help people make up their mind about it rationally. And I, and I think if that had happened, we'd have a much more peaceful and open society. We would. The problem there, though, is that people inherently don't make decisions based on rational criteria. They make decisions based on emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the programming that most of the country has received over the last several years is so strong that, like our, our friend Kyle likes to say, you know, the magic word Trump creates a certain mental image. It creates a certain emotional response that's so visceral that it shuts off the rational brain entirely. And I don't know how we bridge that gap to even have a conversation. You need people who are in that space, who are identified with that tribe to value it. Right. If, if we got to a spot, imagine for a moment, MSNBC said, we're going to have the best person on the Russiagate side and the best person in the it was a hoax, Russiagate hoax side, and we're going to give them an uninterrupted amount of time where they respectfully go through the facts and arguments together and make their case. It would send that internal signal to them to say, oh, I'm no longer supposed to be emotional about this. This is no longer a tribal issue. This is a factual issue. And it turns off that side of the brain, turns on the other side of the brain. At least that's what the righteous mind suggests. Right. And it, it, the, the, the trick is, is that it's a trap because there is no profit to be made in doing that. Right. The only profit to be made doing that is social peace and harmony, which is like at some point that's going to be valued. But well, yeah. it might not be when we want it to be valued. Well, I mean, controversy gets clicks, right? So right. a media outlet would hardly ever base a headline or, you know, a, a really popular story. They wouldn't anchor an hour of television on the idea of we're going to come together a kumbaya. Like that's not going to, that's not <laughs> to gonna have a debate. That's what's great about ads. it, right? It, is, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, my pitch is that it doesn't have to be a kumbaya moment. It doesn't have to be a hippy dippy thing. It can be, we're going to, we're going to search the truth together. But having a rational and discourse, <laughs> having a rational discourse is whoa, man! Like you're saying, <laughs> budget deficits you're are saying, bad. Saying the pee tape wasn't real. <laughs> no, that, that's that's weed. Those are stoners. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's, that's <laughs> a different experience, right? I just I think I think a rational discourse is so like far fetched right now mm. that it does seem kumbaya in comparison to where we are. Mm-hmm. I think. The media is really the biggest culprit here and they're the ones to blame. Ultimately, politicians are going to do what politicians do and they're going to, you know, they're obviously like everyone motivated, you know, motivated by their own self-interest, want to get reelected, play to the base, etc. The media is supposed to be how people get accurate information and it's obviously become so biased in one direction. And to your point about it being, you know, sort of monetizing this type of outrage, as soon as Trump was out of office, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, they all of their their viewership and readership went down dramatically, right? And they realized like, so they've got to keep the orange boogeyman front and center because that's how they get viewership. So, you know, they're financially motivated to keep this division. I also think they're ideologically motivated to do so. Um, and they've really failed the country because I think most people are decent. I think most people across the political aisle, whatever your religion, your race, your creed, people just want to have, people want to prosper. People want, you know, safety for their community. They want their kids to go to a good school. They want to own a home, right? And have a safe neighborhood. We all fundamentally want the same things. We're divided by the information that um, we're fed and and that shapes our worldview. And it makes us angrier than we need to be. Um, and it forgets, it makes us forget that we are, you know, there's a human across the aisle from you. 
Um, that is where alternative media, thankfully, is you know sort of surging and becoming more popular. But like I said before, we're a long way before that really changes the culture. Um, but I do think we're on. I think we're on that course. And I said this the last time I was on the show. That is why resisting internet censorship is probably one of the most important things we can do to save our culture and frankly save the country because if they you know if if the media able is able to get like a stranglehold on alternative forms of media then then we're doomed right then we're on the same path and nothing is going to change if alternative media can open people to um, a more balanced and nuanced perspective then i think we have a chance of of saving our culture I agree. Join the Discord. Like, share. <laughs> Once again, join the join Discord. Yes. <laughs> I'm promoting. All right. So we got some. Uh, so these are our, these are our smaller news stories. Thanks for getting through the deep dive with us. You put a great bow on that. Oh, go ahead. Can I just say one thing? One more thing. Just one little thing. Yeah. Because I just think it's good context to have. We, you know, so now there's all this hype about domestic terrorism, and we have such short memories. The 1960s and 70s, and the article touches upon this a little bit, but um, the 1960s and 70s were wild in terms of domestic terrorism. And we're talking about like actual radicals murdering cops in cold blood on the street, like walking up to the car and shooting people in their head, right? Like gnarly stuff. Weather underground. I was just, yeah. So weather underground and the black liberation army, which was sort of an off, one of many offshoots from the black Panthers were committing insane crimes and violence. Now the kind of funny irony of the weather underground is that they wound up killing more of each other than they killed other people because they were just kind of bad at what they did. Oh my God. Like they accidentally, like by accident. Yeah, yeah. They were, they were actually planning. This is, it's not funny. It's terrible, but they were planning to blow up a like USO event and get a bunch of, cause they were anti the Vietnam war mm-hmm. and that was their solution. Um, and so, and of course they were all these like wealthy you know, sort of lefty kids from New York and they were using one kid's parents were on their annual European summer vacation or something gone for a month. So they're using her like townhouse in New York city to as like their lab where they were making literally all of their bombs for this event where that they were going to attack. And, uh, they fucked up and accidentally blew up the bombs in the house and most of them died Two women survived because they were on the top floor. Um, so anyways, so if we really want to talk about violent extremism, like January 6th is nothing compared to what this country experienced. Not even that long ago, like yeah. in our parents' lifetime, right? The, the, Bill Ayers was one of the yeah. major guys from the Weather Underground, was a major influence on the Barack Obama's life. He is the guy, His uh, Barack Obama's um, like event to announce his campaign, his first campaign, was hosted by Bill Ayers at mm-hmm. his home. Yeah, kind of a mentor. So like, and, and yeah. these people are still around, like whether or not, and have like university positions and things like that. But oh, it was, yeah. it was a very real moment. Uh, the radical left, even in our, is a real thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even in our not time, a joke. <laughs> the divisions uh, after the invasion of Iraq were enormous in the country. We didn't have violence in the streets, but we had a situation where a million people were in the process of dying in an invasion in Iraq that was based upon a lie. Yeah. And a whole part of the population was saying, you lied us into war. How dare you? And the other part was like, how are you not supporting America and our troops as they're risking their lives for our freedom? Like, it's been insane before. We can get on the other side of this moment of insanity, but only if people choose to. Yeah, so totally There has agree. to be a uniting totally. catalyst, yeah. right? Like, what is that? Like, it needs, there needs to be something, right, that inspires people to come together. 
Is it an alien invasion? <laughs> <laughs> no, that'll usher in the one world government. Oh, right. That's yeah. the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I left my tin hat foil hat at home, guys. <laughs> we need to just keep a roll of tin foil here at the studio <laughs> just so that just in case. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know what's going to be. I think that's a great question, Joe. I, I don't think I think what I what I suspect is like most things, it's going to have a confrontation with reality. And then people will bury it in their subconscious or bury it below the things they don't want to talk about or think about when they were wrong, right? Like conservatives do today. There's all these conservatives who never reconciled the fact that they were wrong about the war in Iraq, right? And, and today we'll, we'll basically have an instinct that says maybe Ukraine's not legit because of that, but they're never going to be like, say, I was wrong, right? Because it's really hard to do. So I think a lot of people are, are going to be like, I thought Donald Trump was a Russian Manchurian candidate, but yeah, maybe I kind of got a little bent out of shape, you know, or conservatives were like, I thought he was RFK juniors reincarnated body Q and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is that a real thing? Or are you just making, no, I'm not kidding. Like there was a <laughs> real Q and theory there for a minute. Anyways, don't worry about it. I don't want to even, I shouldn't even say Q and because we're probably going to get flagged now. The yeah. FBI's definitely, you guys are on a list. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not a new list. I'm still that's trying to list. figure out if David is actually deep undercover. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you just look a little bit like an agent. I look all. like a fed. A little bit. Uh, I wish I had an answer for that Joe, but whether or not you were uh, an asset or <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. Um, okay. So I might look like a fed, but I care about the real things, which is real women's day to 2023. Now, Riley Gaines is a uh, famous swimmer who objected to a trans person swimming in her competition and became very famous for it. She came out with this post on Twitter, wanted to see what you guys thought about it. This is where we were supposed to be honoring trailblazing women. Uh, we were honoring men who were claiming the identity of a woman. Like ESPN, for example. They had an entire segment honoring Leah Thomas during Women's History Month where they honored his persistence and triumph through adversity and what his national title in the 500 freestyle means and how he's a pioneer for women's sports. Here's just a little refresher. She competed amidst criticism from the swimming community, competitors, and teammates. She said she hopes her persistence serves a larger purpose. ESPN is not the only one. This is who Hershey's had showcasing their Hershey's bar. A man. So this is when I started to think to myself, we need a day to honor real women. You know, women with XX chromosomes. So after thinking and brainstorming, I have now declared October 10th as Real Women's Day. Now why October 10th? October 10th is the 10th day of the 10th month, which in Roman numerals is XX. And if you took fifth grade biology, then you know XX is the female chromosomes. You know how you can declare a day, a national holiday, like there's probably like a national pizza day or something? I had gone through all the websites and publications to declare October 10th a real Women's Day, but every single one of them declined it because they said it was too controversial. So I'm asking you and encouraging you to stand with me and all other real women on October 10th and recognizing this day as real Women's Day. I'm asking if you will go to the link down below. Uh, it'll take you to the RileyGainCenter.org website where I have created a petition. Uh, make sure you sign on to that petition if you are willing and ready to recognize October 10th as Real Women's Day. Uh, we need to say enough is enough. It's time to roll up our sleeves and say no. Women are being erased, so it's time that our voices are heard. Cat, ladies first. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah? Mm-hmm. 
how will you be celebrating Real Women's Day? <laughs> <laughs> Given I just learned about it. <laughs> I'm going to brainstorm some ideas. I don't know. I'll have to do some... Crack and open a Bud Light and watch yeah, the game. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Scratch and get stinky. <laughs> Maybe mow the yard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Interesting that... Uh, interesting all around. Good branding. I think so. I thought it was very, very clever. Absolutely. I do think uh, we need women should we need to take back like our spaces, right? And whether those are physical spaces like locker rooms or they are um, uh, metaphorical spaces like a holiday to celebrate us. I think, I mean, I'm a turf, right? I Uh-oh. think by modern standards, yeah. What's, what's, a, what's a turf? You got to define this. A trans exclusionary radical feminist. Whoa. Which I don't actually. Are you, think are I, you not I'm familiar a, with this term? No, I just, I just oh. playing the audience. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. okay. You're, you're, wait, you're taking my role then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Even but, I knew that. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, like good for her. We need, um, we need more women to stand up because the truth is I think most women feel this way, but they have been cowed into silence, which is ironic. Um, so let's like call to arms, ladies. Let's, Turf let's day. push back. We need to. You and need to- and governments around the world are starting. Like I think this whole spell is being broken. It's probably going to be one of the shortest lived, like, um, I don't know. What would you call it? Like society-wide psychosis? <laughs> like, Mind virus, uh, it, yeah, to use the parlance uh, right, of our times. Yeah. Right. Moral I mean, panic might be another one. Moral there panic. You go. That's yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of different ways of thinking about it. I, I, I think the uh, infectious disease analogies are very interesting when it comes to this. Um, not because trans people shouldn't have rights and that sort of thing, but sure. rather because the religious dogma in which we approach it, it seems to pattern most closely to that mm-hmm. and very much closely to moral panic about various different things, whether that's on the right or the left in this, of this issue. Right. What do you think about, because there was a swim meet that was held just for trans individuals, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, let's, yeah, so the Swimming World Cup created a separate category we're all fans of the Swimming World Cup, I would imagine. I watch it every avid. year. Yeah. You know, I'm an <laughs> avid fan. Sit down with my Pino Noir and <laughs> watch the World Cup. Swimming. Did I say that right? Uh, I don't drink close wine. Enough. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> close enough. Um, yeah. Uh, so they created a separate category just for trans athletes with the idea being, you know, if female athletes don't want to have to compete against biological men, trans women, then, you know, they don't have to. Biological women can still compete against each other. And the trans athletes, if they want to compete, they can compete amongst each other. Well, the irony is the whole thing was canceled because nobody signed up for it. Which I think says a lot. Mm. It does. Is the population just too small to support it? Is that... I think what's implied is the... uh, There's probably... And I don't have any data to point to this, right? But I think anecdotally, you could conclude that uh, most trans women are competing in uh, against biological women, likely because they couldn't compete against biological men or perform as well against biological men. So they've viewed this as a loophole. Um, and then when they're offered to compete against people that are biologically similar to them, um, they, they opt not to. Mm. So... 
Maybe that's a cynical take. If you would have been the only one to show up, would they just give you the gold medal? (laughs) (laughs) There's the real loophole. There you go. (laughs) Create your own category for yourself and show up and you win. That is the 2023 version of the participation trophy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. I don't think it's a cynical take. I think, I think there's probably some truth to it. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. And if it became a, a wider experiment, social experiment into trans specific, you know, leagues mm-hmm. and how that would play out. I would I'd very much like to see how that yeah. shakes. Right. If we start trans leagues, we should for sure start doping leagues where you can just watch <laughs> roided out dudes just, or anybody really just like absolutely annihilate it. Like, I like that idea. The home run derby was way more fun with Sammy Sosa <laughs> and Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds just, and guys like that just ah! absolutely juiced to the nines. <laughs> it's entertaining. And if they want to do it, they should. That's no, I take. actually, that's been long been the economist's response to the problem of, um, of um, sports drugs has been to have a, a league where it's legal and a non-legal. That way, um, it's very clear which is which. Right. A great one, if you want a great example, is watch uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu professional matches and watch the UFC and look at the body type differences. Mm. It's a very similar sport, both highly anaerobic sports. One includes striking and the other one doesn't. But you'll notice jiu-jitsu league, which does not have randomized testing, those guys are enormous and ridiculous <laughs> looking, right? Where you have a very similar style of athlete in UFC with not them. So. We have a very similar thing in combat sports. I mean, if we really want to like level the playing field, that's the way to do it, right? Mm. The roided people are all operating, right? From like this, they don't, no one has an advantage over anyone else by, you know, taking a performance enhancing drug if they're all taking a performance enhancing drug. And for the trans league, you know, you're biologically the same. So you don't have a biological advantage over your opponent. I think that's fair. Completely. And eventually when we have this, these like, you know, transhuman characteristics like you know cyborg legs and arms and stuff and you can throw a fastball at 200 miles an hour we'll have to have a league for that totally you know a cyborg lead i'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to the cyborg lead. right yeah. the this future is-, is bright you just gotta you gotta <laughs> shift the frame a little not if lindsey graham has his way as oh, he great. gives every single neocon <laughs> stereotype cliche in less than a minute go have you asked uh donald trump your friend to come out and publicly support more aid to ukraine and to push some of these skeptical members of the republican conference i'll leave it up to him to what to do but he wanted to get out of afghanistan well vladimir putin has been praising him for yeah, his comments well, about here's Russian what i'll ukraine. say about president trump he did not pull the plug on afghanistan even though he wanted to the biggest mistake we made since the war on terror is withdrawing from afghanistan to president trump and anybody else if we pull the plug on ukraine that's 10 times worse than afghanistan there goes taiwan to stop funding ukraine is a death sentence for taiwan putin will keep going you missed all of world war ii if you don't know how this uh, movie ends to the republicans who say ukraine doesn't matter to us you're wrong respectfully you're wrong the war gets bigger not smaller there goes taiwan if ukraine can beat russia china's less likely to invade taiwan and putin gets stopped every single cliche isn't that amazing you gotta applaud them for it like <laughs> we should do a little counter <laughs> ding ding <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> he's he's limbering up, folks. So, <laughs> what's wrong with that, Joe? Oh no! Pop this quiz. is this is this is your home run derby, bro. <laughs> I've you've been taking your performance enhancing drugs. You're ready to go. <laughs> Send it. Okay. So first up, um, withdrawing from Afghanistan was not something that Trump 
didn't do. He set a timeline specifically to do it. In fact, one of the reasons why it was such a disaster is we didn't pull out then. We had to pull out on the anniversary of 9-11 so Joe Biden can claim victory on it. He is completely rewriting the historical record, and that is embarrassing for a senator to do. How dare he? How dare he say, oh, that was the worst decision we could have made on the war on terror. We spent 20 years there. We spent decades in Iraq spilling out, you know, veteran blood and our, our treasure while he got rich off of dollars from Northrum Grumman. And he's over here saying this is the biggest mistake ever. No, this was the biggest mistake was voting to get into that situation in the first place. His decision, his leadership did that. And then he's over here saying, well, the biggest mistake was getting out. Just because the pullout was terrible, the pullout was terrible because the because the the generals decided not to implement the president's plan. Was that done intentionally? How are we a republic if the generals don't do what the civilian government says they should? The, we actually know from uh, quotes from uh, people who've left the State Department that the generals were actively lying to the president about troop movements and troop presences. That's crazy. And, and this guy's over here blaming the, the like it's this confusion of macro strategy with the with something that's like a meme on the ground. The meme on the ground is that the Afghanistan withdrawal was bad. And it was the, the pullout was terrible. It was terribly executed. But that doesn't mean that the grand strategy was wrong, a.k.a. pulling out is what we absolutely needed to do. We'd been there for 20 years. And we, we and, 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 and obviously we hadn't made a lick of difference because after 20 years of investment in trying as soon as we pulled out, the Taliban took back over. Then to say that, oh, what we should have done is just stay there forever. Was that your, is that your plan? How many, how many American vets have to die for him to feel like it was long enough? It's, 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 it's so upsetting. You asked the question, Joe, and it totally, I lost what you said, buddy. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. I think you answered it. Oh, man, it, 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 it's the fact that face the nation couldn't push back with a, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't the timeline established by Donald Trump is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I also think that this, the results in Afghanistan and the way the country folded, right, as soon as our presence was gone, the same thing will happen in Ukraine. Those things are inevitable. And I think that they are a, they speak to why we shouldn't get in these situations in the first place. If your foreign policy relies on you growing giant deficits to fund a war machine that has to manage foreign countries and pay their bleeping pensions, that policy is going to fail. Like, that's not going to work. That's not a long-term strategy. Um, So, you know, yeah, when we, I don't think we should be involved in Ukraine. We're in it now. We're heading towards World War III, which is terrifying. And I think most people are so naive, they don't even realize how scared they should be. Um, and, and if we leave, I mean, there isn't, there is not an option at this point. We've pinned ourselves into a situation where there's not an option where it doesn't end in some sort of calamity, right? Like if we keep going, it's going to keep escalating. We're going to be in direct conflict with Russia. That's terrifying and could lead to nuclear war. If we leave tomorrow, Ukraine's going to crumble and fall. It's going to be a huge embarrassment to the United States. And it's probably going to affect our reputation and foreign policy and maybe national security for decades to come. I, you know, I would probably, I take that over World War III, but like there is no good solution to this. And that doesn't mean you dig in and you just keep going down the road that's bad. That means we should have learned our lesson from Iraq and Afghanistan and not intervened in these conflicts that go back so much farther than even the, I mean, these predate the history of the United States, really. You know, like, 
when Ukraine was the the Polish Lithuanian like a part of the Polish Lithuanian Empire, they were fighting with what was Russia, right? Like these are bloodlands that are that are not going to be healed by more missiles from the United States. Additionally, that we can absolutely get out of this with a peace deal. The American president has repeatedly said he's not going to go get for any deal that doesn't return all of the Donbass, a Russian majority speaking place that has tried to leave Ukraine for a decade unless the Donbass is controlled by Kiev. Who cares if the Donbass is controlled by Kiev? That's crazy. And then saying that the entire world's safety from nuclear annihilation should be dependent upon that question is a crazy person's point of view on this unless you're trying to hide something. Unless you're trying to do this so you can get reelected. Unless what you're trying to do is just, unless reinforce at the consequence of thousands of lives, the U.S. hegemonic order at all costs, rather than peace and prosperity and individual people being able to make a life in the, in the, in the country of Ukraine. Second to that, his whole theory on Taiwan is absolutely insane. Taiwan's deal with America since the 1970s was that we will remain neutral on their relationship with Taiwan and not recognize nor do anything with Taiwan. We can trade with them. We can do all these things, but we're just not going to say they're part of China or not. As long as China is peaceful, we, that is our position. So we hold the cards in that relationship because we say as long as your integration with them is at voluntary by the Taiwanese, we have no, we, we don't play a role. We'll stay back. And so far, that has been the deal. This guy is using Ukrainian bodies to justify some other situation in which we, he was trying to fight, get us into another war with China so we can have a two-fronted, two-fronted war against what he wants. Rather than, especially given the fact that it is his foreign policy with Russia that has driven Russia into, into China's arms as it is and created the conditions with which they are tighter. And then he goes around and says like, oh, we can't do this because Taiwan will come next as if that has anything to do with one another. If we did peace in Ukraine and then went to China and said, hey, our, our deal continues as long as you don't use military force to integrate Taiwan, we won't do anything. We're not we're going to we're going to stay out of it. But as soon as you use military force, as the deal has been since the 1970s, then we might watch out. Not only that, we can't keep them from Taiwan. <laughs> Like, like you said, this is a, this is a thing with trade-offs that don't win. Every single simulation from the Rand Corporation, literally a CIA-funded outfit, says that we will lose the entirety of the Pacific fleet if we try to keep China from Taiwan because it's 30 miles off the border in an island. You can't defend that by just sending planes over there or troops or guns. You can't. Fortress Taiwan does not work. At least, at least show me the evidence that it does. Right. And like, and that's, that's the thing that frustrates me also about uh, Lindsey Graham is he will just say, well, I mean, I was in the meeting and that's what the general said. (laughs) Give me evidence that I can review, please. Uh, And and, and that's, and then lastly, Putin is Hitler thing is just so frustrating because believe it or not, there's more than one lesson to learn from history. History is not just World War II happened and therefore this is America's role in the world. That is a narrative. That is a religion. That is a way of looking at the world to pull your strings, to manipulate you, to, to use the nobility of the American dream as a weapon against you. That's what that is. Instead of saying, hey, we made mistakes at every step of the way here. Vietnam War was a mistake. For what reason? The Iraq War was a mistake. For what reason? The entry of World War II against the Axis powers in Europe was not a mistake then, okay? We can say that. We can say, absolutely, we should have stood up to Hitler. Yeah, okay. That doesn't mean that this moment is his moment to be Hitler, right? That doesn't mean that. This could, he could also just be a guy who 
for a very long time as the historical facts say and if someone has other facts i'd love to see them that for a decade two for two decades he's been saying don't expand nato to my doorstep that i will that's a red line that's a red line only two years ago he was proposing a peace deal saying hey if you guys don't put ukraine into nato we'll have a peace or or put ukraine into nato or nato into ukraine we'll have peace and then they didn't and then he invaded that doesn't mean he's justified. It means you have to understand the motivation of your opponents if you want to defeat them, right? If we want to stand up to the Russian Federation, do a better job of that, we can't do that while not understanding their motivation. And it drives me crazy that he leverages that to get us to do something terrible, which is to use Ukrainian bodies for his goal of U.S. hegemony. Not for peace, not for the continuing of the human race through you know, nuclear arms reduction, in fact, he was there for all the other things that have reduced the and made that more likely. But for the hegemony of the United States military, which is not the same thing. All right, that's my rant. I feel like I need to toss you a towel. Um, <laughs> frustrated. That it was I, the first time I watched. It, I was like, yeah, we should react to that. That was funny. That was a lot of cliches. And then this time I watch it, I'm like, I'm. I feel like my face is red. I think it's also worth noting, and I I feel like this is a little known fact that just kind of slipped under the radar and now is intentionally obscured, right, to fit the the war narrative. But uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken went to to Ukraine before the invasion and said, they like signed an agreement saying Ukraine-NATO membership is on the table. And to your point, David, that was Putin's very clear red line. And every Cold War expert has said that we shouldn't touch Ukraine because it will provoke Russia. So is anyone surprised that he invaded after we did that? I mean, that was a, that was a huge geopolitical decision that had major consequences. And it just gets, you know, it's conveniently ignored and left out of the narrative. Completely. That's what makes me think, okay, I know that there is naivete within this administration, right? To a large degree, they're like we've said before, they're, they're campaign people that got put into cabinet positions who are maybe, you know, batting above their league, right? But you can only blame ignorance so much before you have to say, okay, are they actually just deliberately doing really dumb things aggressively? And maybe that's the case here. I don't know. The only reason you would ever believe that is if you were propagandized by Russia. We talk about America's <laughs> role in the world. The continued funding and assistance for Ukraine is now a point of contention on Capitol Hill. How do you think Vladimir Putin is eyeing the growing political divide over the Ukraine issue in this country? I think Putin is not only thrilled by the uh, divide over whether we continue and at what levels to fund Ukraine. I think he is fomenting it as well. Putin and his team that does the kind of interventions, covert and overt, aiming to undermine democracy and to suborn political leaders, is a big part of how he sees his role. So when I see people parroting Russian talking points that first showed up on Russia Today or first showed up in a speech from a Russian official, you know, that's a big point scored for Putin. Uh, When I see Americans in positions of responsibility uh, talking about how, you know, we we shouldn't support the people of Ukraine, uh, you know, they're corrupt. I think, yeah, 
They are working very hard to be transparent and accountable. And talk about corruption, you know, there is there is the master of corruption uh, living in the Kremlin. So there's an ideological and sadly partisan political uh, divide. And I know that the majority of Congress uh, is still in favor of supporting Ukraine. So we've got to get through this period. We have to pass legislation uh, and continue to support. And, you know, Jeff, this this fight is our fight. Honestly, I don't understand any American uh, siding with Putin, but we've seen it and we've heard it and we have to fight against it. Siding with Putin. See, this, this is what's so frustrating. If you if you got to make a case, make the case. Don't say, oh, they're corrupt, but so is so is Russia. Who cares? I care about where my tax dollars are going and they're not being moving weapons to Ukraine and then been giving to international cartels, criminal cartels. Right. That's that's what Seymour accuses. And there's been there's been, you know, substantial reporting around some of that substantial reporting recently. Politico on the second of this month, Politico uh, published a story about a leaked U.S. strategy on Ukraine that um, shows that the Biden administration is far more worried about corruption and our weapons being sold on the black market than anybody's willing to talk about publicly. So. I mean, so she's full of shit. And it drives me crazy (laughs) that if if you had facts, bring the facts, lady. You're the former secretary of state. Yeah. You know, you're you're a former senator. You have access to all this resources. If I'm wrong, if all these people are wrong, bring an argument. But instead, just say, you know, they're lying to you when they say, well, they're just talking points for Putin. If this was 2003, she'd be saying, oh, he's just a talking point of Saddam Hussein. These are the same things. Wake up, America. These people are lying to you, to your face, and they're using human bodies to make money, death of children to make money, and, 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 they, and, they, and they're doing this while they're smiling at you and saying, anyone who disagrees with me must be an apologist for this terrible human being, Putin, which I agree is terrible. Yeah, but for Hillary Clinton to call him the king of corruption is sort of like the pot <laughs> calling rich. the kettle black, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. I also think it's... Um, uh, worth i would love to see a journalist ask her about the and when she was secretary of state about her russian reset which we talked about on the last episode that i was on Mm. a couple episodes ago like how you know how does she reconcile this right like and i think that flip-flop i mean maybe you could argue that the entire democrat established has just you know they've just their views on russia have evolved and done a 180 I think it could also point to a hypocrisy and political motivations rather than, you know, concrete like moral principles that they're acting upon. I think you're right. More than likely. Yeah. So we have cats and last last one on Ukraine. And I know <laughs> this is my pet subject, but this is my second pet subject now is this <laughs> spokesperson for Ukraine is well, they got fired after Kat's comments last time. <laughs> so, and I was in, this is Kat's favorite person online, and even though I'm, I'm way more obsessed with <laughs> them. Uh, yeah, okay, so remember, this is an American um, uh, journalist who went over to Ukraine to fight and then got put into like a propagandist role and then basically said, we're going to hunt down people who say things bad about Ukraine and pro you know, question the war functionally as Putin propagandists making maybe an oblique reference to an American journalist who is currently in a work camp someplace in Ukraine that we lost track of. What was the guy's name again? You always remember and I always forget. Um, it's, um, I don't, I don't oh, recall. Look, this is embarrassing. We covered them too. I, I'll find it. Here I always forget. It. It's like one of those names, you know, 
Gonzalo Lira. Gonzalo Lira. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, uh, that got le- that got put online, and obviously it's in English. So very quickly, Americans found outrage in it, and then we showed it, and you had the funniest, I think, joke we've ever made on this uh, podcast. <laughs> Hands on, down, uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, and so soon after this, they got recorded. A someone convinced her that they were an upper level Ukrainian official, rev- like interviewing her for a job promotion in the Ukrainian military after she got fired from the, functionally their Department of Propaganda. And this is some of the things that she said. This actually happened a couple weeks ago, but Kat wasn't on last week, and so I needed to break this up now because I wanted to see how we'd react. And the reality is, the Russians are not European. Russians, as Mr. Danilov was clear to say, Russians uh, have a, a different culture. Russians are Asian. And ultimately, they do come from the Mongols. They do come from a grouping, uh, Mr. President, Mr. Deputy, of people who are wanting to be slaves and want to be led just as it was from the days of Genghis Khan. And so yeah. I wish the rest of Europe and the Western world understood that Europe ends at Ukraine. Europe ends at Ukraine is what she said. There. Wow. And that Russians are descendants of a culture that wants to be slaves. Because they're Asian. So she's a Nazi now. Wow. It sounds like, like officially. <laughs> One of the crazy things about the war in Ukraine is wow. how much Nazi there is around all this stuff. Right. And, but because they're speaking in a language that's not English, you can't talk about it. Like yeah. you, can't, like, you can't expose it. You can't show it. And what she does here is she shows exactly what they're saying yeah. in another language probably all the time. Right, yeah. right. I did not see that coming. She also looks like a little Maoist in that like green <laughs> you know, like the military green. up to the top, perfectly ironed. I mean, she looks like she's part of the Red Guard. Ooh, shit. She can't win. I mean, this got released online. I don't know what happened to her. She's probably in a gulag <laughs> she's by now. In the work like, camp she's, too. But, she, but, but the thing about that is I don't think she made that up out of the blue. Oh, you no. know, I don't think she just like all of a sudden she was became a racist who thought that the there were an inferior race because they're from Asia and Russian. That is absolutely disgusting. So you're, you're but suggesting it's common. I think it's common parlance there. Everything that she has said from what I've seen is like carefully rehearsed and sounds frankly like programming. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is like the standard talking point in Ukraine. Wild, wild. I mean, she's officially their spokesperson, right? She was. I mean, when you, well, now she's fired because it looks bad, but I mean, I'm sure there's uh, probably different talking points for um, a Ukrainian audience and different talking points for an American audience, right? And she accidentally crossed over. Yep. Well, because she thought in this case, she wasn't doing her job as propagandist, right? She was thought she was interviewing. This is the way you ingratiate yourself (laughs) to upper command of the Ukrainian military is what she thought. I don't think she's a dummy. I mean, yeah. she obviously missed some things, but she, she, why would she think that? And if you can't answer that question with perhaps Ukraine has some politics that are very different from the Western liberal tradition that we have in America, and they're still very up much on the race thing. And then if you question that, you might start questioning why we are defending one Nazi, you know, totalitarian, non-democratic regime from another. Yeah. But you can't do that because that would question the machine. All right, last of our quick reaction stuff. And that's and this is just to end it on a, a brighter note. Oh, man, this is Instagram. I can't blow this up, can I? <laughs> so accurate. Dude, it's incredible. Dwight, Dwight Schrute, for sure. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. <laughs> he, he, he looks like an actor. What, what 
actor is that that he looks like? <laughs> uh, you know what? For some reason, I'm getting um, oh Arrested Development vibes ah. a little bit, or maybe like. Um, I mean, he kind of almost looks like um, the creator of it all, Larry David. Larry David, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. He kind of looks like Larry David. Yeah, he does. Or Bernie like Sanders. A, he has some Bernie Sanders vibes, too. Yeah, it's like a New York <laughs> thing. Yes. Or Vermont, East Coast, whatever. East Coast. Um, the blob. She's from California. Uh, we're sorry. Monday. We don't know what's going on <laughs> I don't out know there. It's all one big all mystery. Same. Whatever. <laughs> just where my tax dollars go to. The right side of the Mississippi River just doesn't even exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the funniest thing, though, about this is that that is not edited. They put music over it and they added the little credits, but that is how it was filmed. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> it's nuts. Incredible. It's nuts. Our justice wow, system so. is a mockumentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just incredible. <laughs> Oh, Lord. All right, guys. Well, it has been a pleasure sitting down with you both today to discuss the news and laugh at the state of our clown world that we're living in. And I thank you both for being here. Kat, thanks so much for coming back and joining us. Yeah, I loved being here. Thanks a bunch. We would love to have you back if you will uh, if you will brave the studio once more. I think I can handle you misogynists a little okay. more. Okay. Okay. All right. That's enough. <laughs> That's Sorry. enough. Sorry. All right. You should have just said I can handle it. You, this ginger a little more. Oh, that's, right. Uh, right. Cut that's him right. Different hey, he's got pronouns. Hey, that's our word. Ginger. That's our word. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching. Join the Discord. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash humanreactionpod. And remember, can how we offensive just, can we am just, I on a scale of 1 to 10? I mean, really, look at me. Look at me. That, you embody white supremacy. In the <laughs> <laughs> yes. Could not have said I'm it kidding. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you're not wrong, though. I mean, as a as a stereotype he kind of does fit the bill yep yep